O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Keep your finger there in Psalm 139. Let's pray and then we'll get into God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the God of Psalm 139, that you are a great and awesome God, the God who has made this world and the God who has saved us in Jesus. We pray that this morning as we hear from your word that we would understand what you're saying to us and that you would help us to be changed by your word. We ask this, Lord, for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. How important is your name? Uh, I reckon you'd say your name's pretty important. This week, I was reading a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People. And in that, he has a whole chapter dedicated to getting to know people's names. He actually says it's the most important thing you can do. I think the title's something like, if you get this wrong, you're headed for trouble. One guy even says that uh, early on in life, he realized that the general person was more interested in their own name than anyone else his name in the whole world combined. And I think he's right that our names are important. And I think we know this as well. I figured this out this week, actually. 
I've just started playing indoor cricket and there's magic when someone knows your name. So in indoor cricket, if you've ever played or seen it before, the umpire is the umpire and the scorer. And so he has everyone's names there. There's something magical that happens when he says, okay, Ben, it's your time to bowl. Right, something amazing happens. I feel like steaming in that I'm Mitchell Johnson, a searing left arm quick that's going to put the fear of God into men. Of course, I'm brought down to earth when I bowl my fifth wide out of six balls. But the name, there's something magical in your name. There's something magical in all of our names. We want to be known. We want people to know us, to know who we are. But we all know that we're more than a name. We all know that at the end of the day, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we know that our name means nothing then, that we are more than just our name. We are so much more. And I don't know if you've ever asked that question, who am I? Like, who am I really? When we go past my name, who am I? What makes me tick? What, what do I think about things? What purpose do I have? Why do I wake up each morning? Hopefully throughout this series, we'll see what our true identity is, who we really are, what our purpose really is, and what better place to do that than by opening God's word and seeing what God says about us. And as we get into Psalm 139, it begins in the most unbelievable way. It begins with the fact that God knows your name. And so if you have your Bible there, have them open Psalm 139. It's for the director of music of David. It's David's psalm. And this is what it says, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. David says, God knows your name. God, right? This is incredible. It says here, verse 1, that God knows our thoughts. Verse 2, that he knows our actions. Verse 3, that he knows why we tick. Verse 4, that God knows what you're going to say before you even say it. This is amazing, right? The God of the universe knows your name. This is not just some guy down the street. This is the God of the universe, the God who made everything that you've ever seen and everything that you'll never see, right? The depths of the sea, the vastness of the universe. This is God. And David's saying, God knows your name. God who's done great things. God who is greater than any person or nation or people who could bring America or North Korea or Australia down in a moment. This is God. And David's saying, God, the God who knows your name, knows everyone's name. Seven billion people. And you're not just a face to God. God knows you. God deeply, intimately knows you. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're going through. And he knows what you're about to say before you even say it. God knows you. God. Right? But, but see, these verses here, they're not meant to kind of make us feel warm and fuzzy. Right? They're not meant to, we're not meant to write them on our pillow slips so that we sleep well at night knowing this. Actually, I think as we think about this stuff, this is kind of meant to put a little bit of fear in us. Right? Because it doesn't say God knows what you're thinking when you're at church and only when you're at church on a Sunday morning. It doesn't say that God knows what you're thinking when you're doing good stuff. It says that God knows you completely. He knows what you're thinking when no one else does. He knows what you're up to when no one else does. He knows your deepest, darkest secrets that you're trying to keep from your parents, your friends. God knows. God knows. And that's kind of frightening. Right? That's kind of frightening that God knows everything. He knows my good and my bad. And he knows that even at my good, I'm still pretty bad. 
God knows my name. God knows my thoughts. And David feels this fear. See, if you see it, verse 5, he says, You hem me in behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So this language of you hem me in behind and before, it's like what happens when you're in a war and you're surrounded with nowhere to go. David's saying he feels trapped. He feels, he, he feels like he's trapped. And so he, he says in verse 6, this is too much for me. So it sounds like that's positive, but it's not positive, it's negative. He's saying it's too much, it's overwhelming. It's too much for me to think about the fact that the God of the universe knows my thoughts, my actions, he knows everything that I've ever done, he knows my speech. It's too much. And so what does David try and do? Verse 7, he says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. David says, where can I go? Right now, the only language, the language we get here is similar language. It's only found one other place in the Old Testament in Jonah. Right? And we remember Jonah. If you were here with us last year, we saw Jonah tried to do this. He tried to flee from the presence of the Lord. Do you know the story? He got on a dodgy old boat, tried to run away from the living God of the universe who made the sea. Jonah tries to run away on the sea. And remember what we said that that was like? It's like playing hide-and-go-seek with kids. Right Now, you know this experience of playing hide-and-go-seek. They just can't hide. Right, so they do stuff like this, where they hide behind curtains and you can see their legs. Kids just can't play hide-and-go-seek. They hide under blankets where you can see the blob. They hide under tables where you can see them directly under the table. And look, we're not monsters. We play along with them, right? We say, where are you? They start to giggle and you know where they are even more. But they just can't do hide-and-go-seek. Now look, I think, to be honest, there should be an age limit on how old you should be when you can play hide-and-go-seek because up to sort of five, you just can't do it. If you think your kid's a genius and want to prove me wrong, then I'll take you up on that this week. But kids can't play hide-and-go-seek. They can't. They try, but they can't. They try to hide, but you can see them the whole time. Running away from God's like that. Right? You can't run away from God. He's everywhere. You can't, it didn't work well for Jonah trying to get on the sea and fleeing from God. It didn't work well for Adam and Eve, if you remember in Genesis 3. It, you can't run away from God. And David's saying the same thing. Everywhere I go, you are there. If I go up, you're there. If I go down, you're there. God, he's saying God is everywhere. If you're trying to run away from God, this is a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place to be to run away from God because God knows where you are. God knows what you're up to. If you think in somehow that you don't need God, you want to run away from God, eventually that will catch up with you because God is everywhere. If you're trying to run away from God, this is a dangerous place to be. But if you're not trying to run away from God, what David actually says and his tone here in this psalm kind of changes, if you're not trying to run away from God, God's presence... The fact that God is everywhere is a good thing. See, that's where he goes. He says, if I rise, verse 9, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, that's the east. If I settle on the far side of the sea, that's the west from where he is. So verse 8 and 9, if I go up, down, east, west, left, right, verse 10, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. God knows your name, but God also knows you. And wherever you go, wherever you are, 
God's got you. That's what David's saying here. God's holding you. God's carrying you through. David even says, in the darkness, God's got me. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day, for darkness is as light to you. Now, darkness in the Psalms isn't talking about when the lights go out. Darkness in the Psalms is the reference to suffering and evil and pain and death. And what David's saying here is that even in the darkness, God's got you. Darkness isn't dark to God. He's got you. He's carrying you through the pain, the suffering, the evil. God's got you. And God won't let you go. That's what David's saying here. God's presence, he's with you in the darkness. He's with you when your world turns upside down. God's got you. God knows you. He knows your name. He knows where you are. He's with you. Why? Because God made you. God made you. That's what he says. Verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God made you. So God knows you. He's with you and he made you. Right? And what this means for us, even we might have heard it thousands of times before, but what this means for us is super practical. It means three things for us. The first thing is that God made you. Right? So what that means, practically speaking, is that you are not an accident. Right? You might have surprised your parents, but you didn't surprise God. You are not an accident. God made you. So when your kids ask you, where, did ba- where do babies come from? The answer is not the stork. The answer is not even mummy and daddy loved each other very much. The answer is that God put you here. Right Now look, I'm not going to go into a biology lesson, and I'm not naive, but God made you. Right? That's what it's getting at here. So practically speaking, you aren't an accident. You're not here today for no reason. You're not here today accidentally because something's happened to happen. God put you here. God made you. So why am I here from the question from the start? Because God put you here. God's got you to this point. God got you here. He made you. That's the first thing that this means. The second thing this means is that God made you fearfully and wonderfully. Right? When we think about how God made us in Genesis 1, the story's great. We see God making animals. He makes the birds. They're good. He makes cattle. They're good. He makes the fish of the sea. They're good. He probably made fishing rods at that point. That was pretty good. But then God made man and woman, and he made them very good. Why? Why did God make them very good? Because he put his image on us. He made us in his likeness, right? And so God looked at man and woman, and he said, they're very good. It would be like if an author wrote a character that was kind of like them or a creator of a show made someone like them. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, if you had a TV show, what character you'd get to play you. But it actually happened in Seinfeld. Now, I know Seinfeld's old, right? Just to make us all feel a bit older than we are, it finished 18 years ago, right? So it's old. But if you haven't seen Seinfeld, there's a part of your life you just haven't experienced. 
And, and in Seinfeld, there's the four main characters. You've got Seinfeld, who's the comedian. You've got Elaine, which I never really liked, but she's always there. You've got Kramer, who everyone loves, right? He's classic. He eats all Seinfeld. And then you've got, you got George, right? Now, George is the best friend who, I don't know, at the start, he annoys you, but as if you don't love him by the end of the show. Now, believe it or not, George is based on the character Larry David. Right? He made George to be in his kind of likeness, to be in kind of his image. Now, I don't know, again, I don't know who you'd pick to play you. I wouldn't be picking a short, bald guy that's annoying, but Larry David did because that was kind of like him, right? I'd want more hair, more muscles, just a better bloke. That's who I'd want to play me. I don't know who that is, right? You could think about that if you really wanted to, but, but Seinfeld, Larry David made George like him. Right now, when we get to Genesis 1, what we see is that God has made us like him. Right? This is a better deal than what George had. God made us in his image to be like him. So, so what does it mean? What does it mean to be made fearfully and wonderfully, to be made in God's image? A, a guy called John Calvin says that to be made in the image of God means that we are made to be relational. And I think he's right. Like There are lots of things that, about God that we're not like. Right In this psalm, we don't know everything, we're not everywhere, but, but what it means to be made like God is to be relational, right? because God is relational. God is love, we see. God loves all the time, we see. God, this is God, and for all eternity, he's been in relationship. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have perfectly loved, have been in perfect unity for all eternity. So when God puts his image on us, he makes us to be relational. So who are we? We're made in the image of God, we're not an accident, and we're made for relationships. Now, the thing about this is psychologists have been all over this for ages, right? They know that within the, the fabric of human beings, we're not meant to be alone. We're meant to be in relationships, right? They know this. In fact, uh, one Christian counsellor who actually, he, he's, in, he's from Brisbane, he works in Brisbane, he came and had coffee with us actually to talk about this stuff. His name's John Waller, and throughout this series, we're going to be kind of looking at some of his stuff. But he says there's five key relationships that we have, right? And when we have these key relationships, um, our lives sort of, it, it's about flourishing when we can get those. Now, it doesn't mean if we don't have one of those, we can't flourish, we can't grow, we can't change. But when they're intact, it's a good thing. And so the first relationship is the vertical one. We're meant to have a relationship with God, he says. Right? That's the first one. That's the most important one. The next, though, flow outwards. Right? And so there's four corners then, four relationships that we have horizontally. So we have family, we have church, we have friends, uh, we have uni work. This is in your growth group, the growth group booklets. The pyramid will make more sense of it, even counsellors or professionals. And when we got those intact, that's kind of how we flourish, how we grow, how we change. Now, it, that doesn't really matter for a second. It's interesting that psychologists are all over the fact that we're relational. But what we get when we're fearfully and wonderfully made, made in the image of God, is that we're made for relationships. And we know this, don't we? We know this because when we lose relationships, it hurts, right? And it doesn't just hurt because we miss them, it hurts because it's a fabric of who we are. We are made to be relational, right? And so when we're fearfully and wonderfully made, God's saying, I've made you like me. I've made you to be relational. I've made you to be the image of God. 
Right, So that's one thing that it means, that we're made for a relationship with God and with others. But the second thing it means, that means, is that as we look around this room right here and right now, we see other people who are fearfully and wonderfully made. Right, Every single person here is made in the image of God, is made fearfully and wonderfully. So if you think about it, if you see a baby that can't survive without their parents' help, or sometimes we see Cezanne up the back who's in a wheelchair that might never know your name. God is saying they're valuable. God is saying that his image is on them, that they are fearful and wonderfully made. That's not up to us to decide. right? So God's saying people are fearfully and wonderfully made. That, so that's the second thing. The first thing this means, we're made. We're not an accident. The second thing, we're made for a purpose, to have relationship with God and others. And the third thing is, as David, say, David says here, we're not an accident to still be here. David says that, uh, verse 16, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knows your days. God knows how long you will live for and God has a plan for you. Right, so... Ethically speaking, all Christians and Jews who've taken Psalm 139 seriously, Jews before Jesus, I assume now too, who've taken Psalm 139 seriously, have had a problem with abortion and euthanasia because we believe God has the plan. Right? We believe that it's not up to me to decide, or a doctor or a parent, but it's up to God. Right? That's what ethically it means. But practically, what it means is that you being here today is not an accident, right? So you're not here today because of that moment a couple of years ago of your quick-wittedness where you missed that car crash. You're not here today because the doctor found something at just the right time. You're here today because God has got you here today. God knows your days. God knows exactly how long you will live for. God's got the plan, right? God has a plan for you, so if you're here, it's not an accident, and God has a plan for you. If you're still here, God has a plan. God has a plan for every day that he's given you. God has a plan. So when we think about the questions at the start, who are we, who are we, what's our purpose, what's our role? Well, God's got us here. God has made us like him. God has made us in his image. He's made other people in his image for relationship with God and others. This is good stuff to think about. Right, Psalm 1 to 16 is great stuff to think about. It's awesome to think about how God has made us. And that's what David says. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. David's saying thinking about this stuff is great. And it is. It's purposeful. It's meaningful. It brings us life and joy knowing that God has made me for a reason, for a purpose. This is good stuff to think about. But unfortunately for us, the psalm doesn't stop there. And I wish it stopped there. Psalm, verse 1 to 17 is so good to think about. It's so good to think about that God is great. But the reality is that while God is great, I'm not. See, Psalm 139, verse 1 to 17, verse 1 to 18, could be really explaining Genesis 1. Right? If you think about Genesis 1, that God is everywhere, that God knows everything, that God has made people fearfully and wonderfully, up to this point, it could be Genesis 1. But we know the story doesn't finish at Genesis 1. 
goes on to Genesis 2 and then Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, the whole world breaks. Sin enters the world. Even though Adam and Eve knew who God was, that God was with them, that God's presence was everywhere, that God made them, they rejected God and rebelled him. They ignored him and did what they wanted to. And since that day, every human that's been born has been plagued with the same disease of sin. Either explicitly we go, God, you're there. You know everything. You made everything. And I don't want to do what you say. I don't want you. I don't need you. This is beyond me. And so explicitly we, we tell God to stuff off. We tell him to get lost. Or we do it implicitly where we say, yeah, I know God's real. And since we're in church, this is probably most of us, I know God's real, but moment by moment, day to day, we live as if he's not. And this is sin. Sin has plagued all of us, and sin has broken this place. God did not make the world how it was. God made us to be in perfect relationship with him in others and others in a perfect world, but this world's not like that. My relationship with God is broken. My relationship with others is broken. My body that God knitted me together is broken. We're not supposed to get sick. This world has fallen apart. The world has broken. Sin broke it. But the reason I think that this psalm doesn't finish at verse 18 is because David's about to show us where we can turn in the fact that sin has broken this world. And what he's about to say is that we can turn only to the one we've offended. Now, a few years ago, I was a single man living out of home and living with a bunch of mates. My brother, Matt, gave me this offer. He said, come to my house and live with me and I'll give you cheaper rent. And so, of course, I'm going to take that deal. And so I left the guys that I was living with. As I was packing my bags and leaving that house... I told one of the guys that I was living with that I would never live with him again. Right now, you might think that's harsh, and the reason you think that's harsh is because it is harsh. And, but I told him this, not because he's a bad housemate, just because our friendship was better when we didn't live with each other. So I told him that I offended him, packed my bags, and moved to the promised land of cheaper rent, the land flowing with milk and honey and wheat bix and all other things I can afford now. I, I wanted to do that, and so I left. Eventually, though, my brother got a girlfriend, and you know what happens next when they got engaged? And I remember the day clearly. He sat me down in his lounge room. He handed me a box of tissues and said, this is going to be hard, but you've got to move out. Now, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. I've been paying rent in this place, which has gone directly to the mortgage, so technically the house is part mine. But he didn't want to borrow that, and so he sort of kicked me out. Now, I remember looking for a house, uh, looking for people to move in with, but... You know, it was scarce. People just, I don't know, maybe it was the financial crisis. I don't know. People just didn't want to move out. The only person, though, that was moving out was the guy that I had told I never wanted to live with him again. And so I remember I had to put my tail between my legs and crawl back and say, I'm really sorry, but I want to live with you again. Now, he didn't let me live that down ever, um, but he let me live with him. See, the only place that I could turn in that moment was to the guy, the one guy that I offended. What we get here in this psalm, what we get with sin, see, sin is offensive to God, right? We can't live as if God's not there and pretend it doesn't offend God. It does. God is deeply offended by sin. He's deeply offended by sin, but what David shows us is that the only place we can turn is back to God. Verse 19, If only you would slay the wicked, O God. 
Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. David is showing us where we can turn to deal with sin. We turn to God. David turns to God. He trusts God to deal with sin. Now, there is a couple of questions that we have here. The first comes from the last little bit, 23 and 24. How can David, who knows Genesis 3, knows that he's plagued with sin, pray to God, search me and see if there's any offensive way in me? Because David would know that within him there's an offensive way, right? So how can he pray that? But the second question is, how can David too pray stuff like, I hate those who hate you? Right? When we're told our whole lives as Christians to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So how can David say stuff like this? The reason he can say stuff like this is because, well, ultimately, he trusts God to deal with sin. But David doesn't know how God will deal with sin. He doesn't know how God will do that. He doesn't know what event will take place that where, where God will deal with sin. But see, where we enter the story, we do. Right? We live in a different time than David. We live, but there was an event that happened that we live after. An event where God knitted together a baby in the womb of Mary. An event that happened where God entered into this world in Jesus, came and died on the cross, not praying what David prayed to slay the enemies, to slay the wicked, but praying for his enemies. David trusted God to deal with sin. He didn't quite know how that would happen, but we do. We see Jesus who died on a cross to deal with sin, to fix the brokenness of this world, to fix our broken relationship with God, to fix our broken relationships with others. Jesus came to fix the problem of sin. But see, here's the best news. Here's the good news. Not the best news, but it's great news. Jesus didn't just come to fix the problem of sin so that we could have a better life here and now. Jesus came to fix the problem of sin so that we could have purpose here and now, reason to live here and now, but also a hope for the future. And the beautiful thing about this psalm is that David longs for this too. He looks forward to this day as well, and it was in the one verse that we missed. The one line that we missed in verse 18, he's talking about, we'll start at 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. And then he says this, when I awake, I am still with you. Now, scholars and commentators and people who are experts in Hebrew poetry say that this line here is the pinnacle of this psalm. Isn't that weird? Why would, why would David, why would this be the pinnacle of the psalm when David's already said that God knows everything, that God is everywhere? Why would he say when I wake up in the morning that, that God is there? That doesn't, that seems weird. Unless, of course, David's talking about something else. In Psalm 17, David sings another psalm. He prays another psalm. This is what he says in Psalm 17, verse 15. And I, in righteousness... I will see your face. When I awake, and it's clear from this psalm that he's talking about death, when I awake from death, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. Jesus didn't just come to deal with your sin so that you could have a better life here and now. 
Jesus came to deal with your sin. He did. He fixed your sin. He fixed it on the cross. But he came so we could have a hope beyond the grave. He came that we too could pray what David prays, that when I awake, I will see your face. God knows your name. He knows what you're up to. He's with you. His presence is there. He's carrying you through the darkness. And God is the only place to deal with sin. And when we turn to God, he does deal with sin. He deals with it on the cross where Jesus defeated sin in his death. But he also defeated death in his resurrection. So keep going. Keep trusting in the God that knows your name. Because when you wake, you'll see his face. And the words that we get in the New Testament are welcome, good and faithful servant. Judy, keep going. God knows your name. And when you sleep for the last time, you will open your eyes to him. Who will welcome your home? Let's pray. God, it's a good message. Thank you, Jesus, for dealing with sin in your death and dealing with death in your resurrection. Thank you that you know our names. And thank you that we have a hope that when we fall asleep for the last time that you'll see us and that you'll call us by your name, by our names. And you'll welcome us home. Because if we go up or down or left or right, you're there. Even in death, you're there. And in the darkness, you will carry us through. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.